Okay, we are on number 330 of this book, so there's no point in really just trying to figure out where the end is, but we're... Time is so amazing. Look at that. Okay. uh, Master says, Swami writes, In view of his words, Yogananda's words, I killed Yogananda long ago, I recall another comment he made to us several times. I won my liberation many lifetimes ago. You know, it's just that's all there is to that conversation. Those were very important words that Swami wanted to put forward. It's partly him. Uh, uh, in other places in this book, he talked about Master being Arjuna with Krishna and being William the Conqueror and all those others. So we have those other incarnations and Swami's trying to establish what kind of consciousness Master brought into those incarnations. In addition to the fact that this is, these are simply words that need to be preserved, um, Swamiji talked a lot about how Master presented himself so differently early on. I, I, I know I was talking about this in a Sunday service recently. Master presented himself very, very differently early on and he did not bring forward the idea that he was an avatar. It just, I mean, Swami actually asked Master if he was an avatar. And Master's response to it was, um, a work of this magnitude would have to be started by such a one. It was a very impersonal answer. But when you stop and think about it, Swami arrived in 1948, and he had to ask Master the question. It wasn't an established fact that Master was an avatar. So there was space for Swami to wonder which actually, when you sort of put all those pieces together, it, it gives you an idea. Part of that is, the reason part of I say that is, um, it, it's very complicated what the right relationship and understanding is of these great saints. I mean, from our side. Uh, let me just try to get where I was going. There's a book that someone loaned me, which I haven't actually read very much of. I just haven't had a chance. It was, it's about Ramakrishna. Part of the reason I haven't read it is because I recently, when I was in seclusion writing, I read a lot of books, of biographies and about Ramakrishna and different people because it was the perfect thing for me to be doing because it was always inspiring but not difficult because it was biography, not philosophy. There's this book that I have about Ramakrishna and the author says specifically, he makes a distinction between the facts and the legend about a great soul. And he actually says, this is not about the facts, this is the legend of Ramakrishna. And it was actually, it's interesting, and he has a a certain theory about it, which is sort of fun, which he says, often legends tell you more truth than facts. Because you're trying to find a way to put into words something that is beyond the facts. And a lot of uh, the stories about Jesus' life uh, the, the people want to communicate in some way the extraordinary experience they they have had, and so they they sometimes make up stories because by by putting it into poetry and fiction, it more clearly expresses the feeling than than just to give the bare facts. Or, of course, like John. St. John in in his gospel he was able to put philosophical ideas into extraordinary poetry so you you get it both philosophically and poetically but a lot of times the stories of 
the star and the virgin birth and the um, the angel coming and they they could all also be literally true but it's the legend that they're creating so that you'll know how to feel about it so so it's all it all gets very complicated um, so what 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 happens after a great soul dies is their um, their persona gets more and more defined by the devotion people feel toward them. And the devotion that people feel toward them is quite appropriate. And they're just trying to find a way to express it. And it, 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 it can become more and more rigid. And also when those legends try to have to be turned into actual theology, then the theology can get quite confused because the legend is not substantial enough. I mean, even the story of Adam and Eve or something like that, where Master talks about it being allegorical and then people want to make it literal and then you have to make up a, a philosophy that has it make sense in a literal sense. You, you can see how complicated it is. But uh, understanding Master as an avatar is a really important part of understanding who he was. So Swami wanted to make sure that that was clear, especially at the time, I guess, because it wasn't. And uh, I think I was saying this on Sunday. Swamiji in, uh, said somewhere in the last years of his life that he realized that part of the difficulty between himself and his fellow disciples, especially the women who were there for 20 years when Swami was only there for three, was that when Swami walked into Master's life, Master had shifted even the disciples of Master, the women who were with him for so long, all spoke of how after his great samadhi in, in the summer of 1948, he changed. And in the movie Awake, where they interview and so on, it, it comes out that they talk about how different, that he was different. I read that recently in Phil Goldberg's biography of Yogananda. He mentioned, he quoted the disciples again. And among the things that Master said during that samadhi where he was talking out loud and they were taking notes of the thing he was saying was that Divine Mother said to him, I sent you a few, um, did she actually say lemons or, or bad ones at the beginning? Uh, maybe bad ones. But and speaking of the disciples, but from now on I'm sending you nothing but angels. And Swami commented that he believes he was the first disciple to come after that. So it, it, it wasn't only looking backwards the role that Swami played, it's that Master made a turn at that point and became far more impersonal and far more um, universal, expansive in the way he was. And that was the only way Swami knew him. Whereas these, these other women who'd been with Master through so many other experiences just understood him differently. And it wasn't that they couldn't walk all that distance, but they had just so much else in their experience of the way Master had behaved that it, um, it just caused a division between their understanding. There were a lot of other reasons for it, too. But it was just an interesting one. Because every disciple perceives the guru, the same guru, according to the their capacity to perceive and not merely it's not just a question of capacity it's also according to what the guru wants to show them 
because he'll show them what they need. He won't, he won't show them what, they, what won't benefit them. So it's the facets of a diamond. Swamiji talked about when he went to India, well, he, he talked about it earlier in the path, when uh, Master had him editing, when he was, when they were both at the desert, in the desert, but Swami was at the monk's retreat, and Master was finishing his commentary on the Gita, and, and Master had him there by himself trying to edit the um, Rubaiyat commentary. And Swamiji said it was, it was uh, so hard for him because Master would explain that this is what this passage means, but then on the other hand it could mean this, and then on the other hand it could mean that. And Swamiji said he was just so trained in Western logic where you work it down to the one that's true, and once that one is true, the others are not true. And he, he, as he said, he, he didn't doubt that Master was his guru, but he began to doubt that Master was wise. And he said he would, he would have impatient feelings like, can't he make up his mind? And he said only later when he went to India, which was a few years after that, a decade after that, and he was exposed to the whole Indian way of, of, of looking at things, did he realize that, that Master was not um, below his, his either-or logic. He had just expanded into a completely other reality, and it was just completely different. Swamiji said, Indian, an Indian person can completely disagree with you, but without having to call you wrong just because you have just an alternate point of view. And of course, where scripture is concerned, well, where spiritual life is concerned altogether, um, it depends on where you're standing, which direction you have to go. And the, the classical picture that Swami always gives us, if, you're south of, if your goal is to get to the equator, if you're at, in the south of the equator, you have to go north. And if you're north of the equator, you have to go south. And both of you are moving toward the same goal and toward the center, but you are literally doing opposite things. We were having um, some conversation recently. I was in Israel earlier this month. And this is recorded in January 2019. And immersed in, uh, when you're in Israel, you're immersed in the Israeli culture because it's a very small place and it's very intense. And, of course, it's a Jewish nation. And um, the... Orthodox Jews, almost all the Jews, but especially the Orthodox, are extremely loyal to the Sabbath. And the Sabbath is a holiday that's about God, but it's also a holiday that's a great deal about being with family. And I was, I was uh, reflecting, as I have at other times, and I could see how powerful and positive on a certain level that really was, that people really set aside time to nurture their families and take care of their children and keep their multi-generational lives together and, and totally undistracted and, and do the prayers. And I don't really even know what, the, what all that they do. When people talk to me about it, they talk a lot about family. And family is a great value because for many people, family is the way in which selfishness is overcome and self-identity expands. I mean, biological family, multi-children, grandparents, everything. But there's also a point at which family, identification from, with family can become bondage. So it's a very, it's a very delicate thing because if, if you're standing at a place where you're trying to break all identification 
and therefore, I mean, when traditionally, when sadhus in India would leave home, there's that story that Swami tells about um, a woman who was saying to her husband, she says, I'm very concerned about my brother. He keeps talking about abandoning the world and going up to the Himalayas. And the husband says to his wife, he said, oh, don't worry about him. He's just talking about it. That's not how it's done. She says, well, how is renunciation done? He says, like this. And he took off his fancy clothes and he ripped his cloth and just tied a little loincloth around his waist. He pronomed to his wife and said, from now on, I regard you and all women in the world as divine mother. And he walked out of the door and he never came back. <laughs> now, in in a context of family values, there would be absolutely no way that you could ever think that was valid. But the Indian tradition is full of examples of people who are asked simply to walk away. There's the uh, other story of the man and his wife who lived as renunciates in the forest. And the man was always telling God that, you know, the moment you call me, I will respond no matter what. And the wife gave birth to their first child. She died in childbirth. And the baby was there. This is, I don't know whether it's just a, a legend or whether it's a true story. The baby is there. And at that moment, God calls him to the Himalayas. This is how the story goes. And the man had, you know, sworn an oath that whatever God asked him to do, he would do. And he, he, he tries to walk away, but then he prays. He said, I can't. How can I leave my helpless infant? And God tells him, he said, just conceal yourself in the bushes over here and wait. And just a moment later, a queen and her entourage come through the forest. The queen hears the baby crying and goes and sees that it's an abandoned newborn. She takes it to herself and says, you know, I, God has given me this child and I will now raise it as my own in the palace. So then she walks off with the baby and the man goes happily to the Himalayas. So was that the wrong decision on their part to identify with the infinite and give up the finite. You know, all of those relationships, especially the biological ones, are based on the definition of self as one body. Because as soon as this body dies, the tie soul to soul is not broken. Because those are those are those are outside of time. And we we we, we repeat our loving associations over and over. But the definition of that relationship is depend, dependent upon the body. And Catholic, um, Catholic religious um, often cut the ties with the family because we're trying to break that self-identity. Now, in Ananda, we don't do that. You know, we're trying, we're, we're living a more middle road, but that doesn't make it not true. So it's, a, you know, it's one of the things about Ananda that a lot of times our families would get frightened when we'd move in. It's so funny to me because when I was doing it, it was our parents, they were upset. And then I got old enough that the children would become, the grown children would become upset because their parents would join, which always amused me immensely. But the fear always was that somebody was getting into a cult and that the relationship with family would be severed. But Master never asked us to do that. Swami never asked us to do that. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't come first. 
So it's, it's all a little complicated. And now, why, why did I get into that? Let me just see if I can remember why I started that. Hmm. Well, I think I, oh, I was talking about how the guru will show you whatever it is that you need to know. And, and not every principle applies to every person. Um, uh, I remember when Swami was giving a satsang about renunciation at one point. And he was really talking about his own extreme attitude of renunciation. And at the end of it, he said to people in the room, I won't give you the whole context, but he said to people in the room, don't even try to live the way I live. You know, instead of, instead of showing him, showing this attitude of such world renouncing, he said, don't even try to live the way I live. He said, um, you wouldn't be able to do it, and it's not even appropriate for you to try which is a, just a very interesting comment because we tend to sort of, I mean, somebody once said to me, they were thinking of joining the Nayaswami order and I asked what vow they wanted to take and they said the, the final Nayaswami vow, which was not at all appropriate. I said, why? This all because it's the highest vow. You know, we're eight type A achievers and, you know, that's the, that's the gold medal one, so I'll just do the gold medal one. No, actually, that's not how it works. It's not the gold medal for you because you may need to raise five children just because that would be the way in which you know, the, the appropriate next step would happen for you. You know, all of this leads to a very... Um, it helps greatly in relaxing our attitude toward ourselves and to other people because we, you, know, you just really don't... We don't even really know ourselves where we stand and what we do. And often karma surprises us. We just discover that we have karmas that we didn't know we had. And then all of a sudden, there it is, and this whole reality comes out of you. I'm, uh, anyway. And so it is with everyone else. They're all just as, like us, just wandering around looking for the way out. Okay, any comments or questions about that? Number 331. It's a very long story, so I'll read the whole thing. The absence of ego consciousness does not mean that self-consciousness ceases to exist. Far from it. Rather, it is the sense of self made infinite. This great truth is described in his poem, Samadhi, in the following line, ever-present, all-flowing, I, I, everywhere. Often with great enjoyment, Master told the following story to illustrate a master's complete lack of ego consciousness. You know, Swami uses the word ego consciousness does not mean that self-consciousness needs to exist. It's almost like that because self-consciousness has two different meanings. You almost want to say it's not that the master is not conscious of himself or conscious of himself as an individual, but it's rather that, you know, the body becomes the whole universe. It's really hard to imagine, but it's marvelous to contemplate. That's why um, memorizing the poem Samadhi is so interesting. Ever-present, all-flowing, I, I, everywhere. We tend to think that we somehow... You know, it's strange. It's, it's, it's like infinite consciousness is not unconsciousness, but because we are as we are, we tend to, to think in terms of just of losing self-awareness. This, this to me is the, I mean, this is the cutting edge, which I believe in previous incarnations has actually driven me insane. Um, 
literally, is that the absolute inescapability of self. I mean, it can still frighten me if I think about it too much. Seriously. It's just like, it's an existential crisis that you actually have to go through. Is that there? there is no escape. And that's why you, you people, that's why we commit suicide in previous lifetimes. That's why we become drug addicts. That's why we drink. That's why we overeat. That's why we become sex addicts. All these different things. It's all a desperate desire to escape from from the um, from the inescapable responsibility for our own consciousness. And I'm going to scare myself if I talk about it too much more. I mean, you, you know, I can philosophically talk about why there's no reason to fear, because there isn't. But Swamiji actually said something very interesting once. He said, when final liberation comes, he said, and there's this sudden realization that, the, that there is no other, that, that everything is one. He said, for, for an instant, there's this sense of terrible loneliness. It's not just a, what a statement. And then he said, then comes bliss. I, I, there's so many mysteries to the divine that, <laughs> that we don't know anything about. There's that, that book that's published about Lahiri Mahashaya that's taken from his diaries. I, I wish the book were better. It's very hard reading that book because the author's words and Lahiri's words, and it's all mixed up together. But nonetheless, and I can't remember the author's name, so I can't rec- say what it is, but the, the, the thing that it really shows you is that samadhi is just the beginning. Because Lahiri, here's, he's an avatar, and he's just constantly talking about all these different things you do in cosmic consciousness and all the things that you can try and all the experiences that you have. I mean, certainly for me, I never, I never really brought it to a clear focus, but I, I just really thought it ended. You know what I mean? Like, there's just this point where it's over and then you're done, you've, you've made it. <laughs> Does that make any sense? But I guess you just, and, and Master wrote to Rajasi, in some of these letters I've seen bits and pieces suggesting things he might try. <laughs> you know, just different ways of experiencing infinity. It's an ever new, ever, you know, ever new, ever new joy. It's ever changing. Uh, who knows? These are the things I said that drove me crazy, so I won't go there anymore. So here's the story that Master often told with a great deal of pleasure. The gopis used to bring fresh cheese every morning to Krishna. Joyfully they would cross the river Jamuna to the other side, where Lord Krishna lived. He relished that cheese because of the devotion with which they brought it. One morning, to their great dismay, the river was in flood. How were they to cross it? One of them then had an inspiration. Vyasa, a great disciple of Krishna's, lived on their own side of the Jamuna. Thus, uh, this was the famous Vyasa who years later wrote the Bhagavad Gita. Let us go and plead with him to perform a miracle. The gopi cried eagerly. They all rushed to the hut where Vyasa lived. Sir, they cried, we've been taking cheese every morning to Lord Krishna. This morning, however, we can't get across the Jamuna. It is in flood. Would you please help us? They smiled at him winningly. (laughs) 
Krishna, Krishna, shouted Vyasa as if in anger. All I ever hear is Krishna. What about me? Does it never occur to you that I too might enjoy a little cheese? Well, what a dilemma. They deeply respected Vyasa, but after all, this cheese was intended for Krishna. If, however, the only way to get it to him was with Vyasa's help, well, what else could they do? Please, sir, they said, take a little of this cheese for yourself. Well, Vyasa took it, and then he ate and ate and ate. He didn't stop eating until he couldn't swallow any more. There was only a little portion of cheese left for Krishna. Vyasa then hoisted himself to his feet and somehow carried himself to the riverbank. Swami puts a parenthetical in here. How I, Walter, smile at the memory of the masters pantomiming Vyasa lumbering toward the riverbank. Jamuna, Vyasa cried on reaching the river, if I have not eaten anything, divide up and part. What on earth is he saying? whispered the gopis to one another. First he stuffs himself like a pig, and now he cries, if I have not eaten, what a liar! What possible good can come from this adventure? To their amazement, the river parted. A narrow opening formed between two great walls of water. The gopis crossed hastily to the other side, not stopping to puzzle out this mystery. They hurried to Krishna's cottage, crying out, Lord Krishna, Lord Krishna! Usually he stood at the cottage door, eagerly awaiting their cheese. Today, however, there was no sign of him. Lord Krishna, they cried, where are you? What's the matter? When they reached his front door, they peeked inside and saw Krishna stretched out on a couch, his mouth curved in a happy smile. To their anxious inquiries, he replied sleepily, Oh, I'm sorry, I just can't eat any more cheese today. But Lord, who fed you? No one else brings you cheese in the morning. Oh, he replied, that fellow Bias on the other side on the other side of the river has fed me too much already. Biasa, you see, had been thinking only of Krishna as he ate. His body swallowed the cheese but Krishna got all the benefit. That, concluded the Master, should be the way one acts in this world. Think always of God. Ask Him in everything you do to do it through you. My word. Now, you know, there's a, a legend. I was talking earlier. There's a legend you don't really know where fact and fiction really are in that. Every part of it is possible. Moses parted the Red Sea. Biasa could part the, the Jamuna. All of that is possible, but what you see from that story is you get this completely other picture of, of a potential that the masters can talk about philosophically, but when they tell it in that story, you really have it in your mind. And, and you, when one thinks to oneself, you know, I say a little blessing over the food before I eat it, but who am I feeding when I'm feeding? You know, we're feeding ourselves. We always are. 
we're, we're, we're so deeply identified. This goes back to what I was talking about, you know, family and attachment and breaking all these bonds. You, 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 for most people, it's not appropriate for them to even try. So, you know, all of this has to be taken judiciously. For most people, it's not appropriate for them even to try. They would be suppressing too many aspects of their nature if they tried to act as if they didn't have a body to act, as if they didn't need other people to repudiate their family, and even to even most people are not intended to be renunciates. I mean, in a formal sense, the monastic life is only for a handful. But you hear this story about Biasa, and you realize it, it gives you a, a heart picture, picture that, that starts with the feeling and isn't just about the ideas, about how completely we can redefine our self-definition. And this is what Master said, I killed Yogananda long ago. No one dwells in this body now but God. And that's not po- poetry. That's not poetic license. That's an actual statement of the reality of it which this story then tells us, Vyasa eats and Krishna gets full. It's, it's just fabulous when you, when you stop and think about it. And it gives us a whole way of uh, entering into it that has a lot more magnetism than just the idea. I mean, actually, it depends on who you are. You see, this is a bhakti story, and for a bhakti it would work really well. For a, a strong jnani, they just wouldn't be able to go through all of this. They would do better with strong philosophical ideas, but for a bhakti it really takes you somewhere that you want to go. Isn't it marvelous? And, and you know, Master was all those things to all people in every direction. Whoever you were, he could be who you were. So, I remember when Swamiji was giving uh, a certain... Uh, mantra and he spent a long time explaining exactly how it should be pronounced and then afterwards he said well he said specifically he said that was for Shivani because she'll want to know <laughs> he spent a really long time making sure that we understood it exactly because Shivani would need to know exactly you know I got the drift and that was enough for me but he knew she needed more than that so I mean there was a hundred people in the room but he knew he knew what she needed so he, he gave it to her I've heard Swami often talk in different ways, just depending on who's in the room. You know, and if if the wrong person, I won't say the wrong person, but he would never hurt someone, so sometimes he would just refrain from saying things that he would have said, but so-and-so, it would not help them to hear it, so he won't say it. It doesn't make it not true. It doesn't make him incapable. It's just a different... Uh, it's all individual. It's really marvelous. Okay, any comments or thoughts or questions? All right, number 332. Krishna gives this counsel in the Bhagavad Gita to his chief disciple, O Arjuna, be thou a yogi. One day Krishna said to Draupadi, the heroine of the Mahabharata, the wife of all the Pandavas, why don't you practice yoga meditation? So on one hand Krishna's told Arjuna to be a yogi, and then now he's, he asked Draupadi, why don't you practice yoga and meditation? Oh, I would love to, Lord Draupadi, Draupadi answered earnestly. But how can I do it? Every time I sit to practice the techniques, I become so absorbed in you that I forget everything else. At those words, Krishna only smiled blissfully. So we're following again the same theme. 
He's telling Arjuna to learn certain practices and do them. And Draupadi is saying, but I can't, because the techniques are a means to an end. You know, in our own... uh, I was having a conversation with someone and we were talking about certain delusions that too often set in, can set in. And uh, the response someone gave to me was, well, the only answer to that is deep meditation. I said, well... And, and this this is a complicated question. Uh, because a person can have great devotion and not still not be able to meditate that well. And a lot of times... It's always been a dilemma for me exactly how much to emphasize meditation as the most important part of the path, even more how much to emphasize Kriya practice specifically as the most important part of the path. Because even meditation is a means to an end, and Kriya is just a means to an end. And that's what this particular story from Krishna tells you, but Krishna gives different advice to Arjuna. But he also, you know, says you should practice these techniques. And she said, but I can't because I'm already where those techniques are taking me. So it's, it's not only, it, but it doesn't, the reason we, we can abandon those techniques when we have, uh, when we find ourselves distracted by the fact that, that God is already present, we can't put them aside on the basis of the fact that Ultimately, we're not. We may not need them. It's quite different, but um, we always need to keep our minds on what the most important part of this is. And this is where Swamiji also uh, said that Master taught many things in public, but to the disciples, he talked mostly about attunement. And of course, then you go back to Kriya, and then you go back to meditation practice as the most powerful ways to a, you know, part of the powerful way that you stay in tune and, and can get in tune because we have to discipline, we have to, we have to extract ourselves from this endless preoccupation with the external world and meditation is the method by which we do it to be able to get quiet enough to feel the real presence of God and hear real super conscious intuition instead of merely subconscious intuition which is it all gets very complicated we can be very in tune with ourselves and feel very inspired but it's because we've closed ourselves in not because we've actually transcended ourselves but nonetheless the right word for that is attunement and devotion and uh, surrender and it's not separate in any way from meditation but meditation by itself it doesn't take you there unless you're also doing all of that. That's what Swami wrote in, this is all very uh, subtle. Swami wrote in this little pamphlet called A New Dispensation, which was like four pages or something. I don't know if it even, where it even exists. I think it's been reissued repeatedly. But he, in it he tried, he tried to balance this question of meditation. As it happened, there was a a man in our community for many years who meditated many long hours. And it it, uh, didn't really give him very much. And and Swami used him as an example of 
long hours of meditation, as he put it, without, and this was his phrase, without a corresponding effort to try to get in tune. He said, will not bring you what you want. And in fact, can be the reverse, because if pride sets in because of those long hours of meditation, then you can actually end up worse off than if you didn't devote yourself in that way. Because it's the grace of the guru, it's the grace of God through the guru, that actually transforms us. It's not really our own effort that transforms us. I have this strange theory, which I think is philosophically completely unsound, and it doesn't even match my own experience, but it's a legend, (laughs) which is that we never actually really change and we never actually get any better. (laughs) It's just that we stop caring. (laughs) And the, and the, the percentage of our consciousness that is defined by the mess that we are becomes smaller and smaller because the rest of it gets bigger and bigger. And, and what that means to me is, in the, what, what, what that came to me was after years of uh, futile efforts to bully myself into perfection. You know, just constantly berating myself for not being good enough. It finally occurred to me that I just never would be. And then I exaggerated it as I've exaggerated it because, in fact, over many years on the path, I've become a new person several different times, you know. Um, and, and qualities that were, were salient features just aren't there anymore. So I know you can really, you really do change. But what really happens to you in the, in the weirdest sort of way is that you put out all that effort and then suddenly God changes you. <laughs> And it's it just this, there's no other way to say it. Because when you actually shift, there's this tremendous awareness that I didn't have anything to do with this. It's just somehow God came and rescued me. However, if one hadn't put out all that effort, it's not likely that he would have rescued you because what that effort did is, you see, the, the, the vrittis and the ego and the fears and the attachments constantly... I mean, it's just, it's, it, you can almost look at it physically. We need to stay in the center, and all of those things just keep dragging portions of us away from center. And we become, we, we make a vortex over here of attachment to this person and extreme concern over this situation and disappointment. And I am, by no means, I am not making light of these things. You know, I'm saying it like this, but I'm not mocking it, not even a little bit. You know, we just we just get caught in these vortices. And intellectually, we think we shouldn't, but I mean, the intellect doesn't rule. The heart rules, and we just live in these vortices. So we have literally moved out of center, and we're living in a vortex, just like there's the trunk of the tree and all the branches. And it doesn't mean that we can't participate in that, but when we shift our center over to there, attunement comes from the center. And insofar as we take pieces of ourselves and make other vortices, of which we have countless of them, the vrittis and the chakras, then that, that much of us can no longer be in tune, just by definition. But of course, some of us can. But then when you're in tune, what happens is all of a sudden something flows through you. And that's, that's why you suddenly realize, oh, this isn't me, and it's never been me. 
It's just, I've, I've just finally opened the door or, or moved the boulders aside enough or dissolved the rocks, whatever you want, however you want to say it. And so meditation and Kriya put us in center and hold us in center. But it's being in center and therefore then receiving him, as St. John says, that's where the transformation takes place. And it, it's actually really quite fun when you crash and burn and recover enough times <laughs> to get a little faith in the process. And it doesn't, it's not fun when you see a new challenge coming. I mean, it's not yet fun for me. You know, I, it's, it's, I have more strength because I know that this too shall pass. And so that, you know, that helps. But nonetheless, we just have to do it over and over and over again until apparently one day it's completely done. So they promise. All right. So, any questions or thoughts about that? Number 333. The Master, after Sister, Gyan, after Sister Gyanamata's passing, was discussing her life with a few of us. What a great soul she was, he exclaimed. The body is only a plate. Eat the feast of spirit from it as she did while you still have the body. After that, what happens to the plate no longer matters. He, Swami is writing that in the context of his readers remembering that Sister Gyanamata had very poor health. And for 20 years, Master said, he kept her in her body, and she suffered greatly in physical ways. But he's also telling his disciples at that point that she'd, she, she'd eaten the feast of spirit off the body, so it didn't matter what happened to the plate, whereas others watching her, who are more involved in being the body, might have felt that, might have seen it differently. It's very, very hard to see it as the masters see it. And, you know, whether what she was doing, what kind of karma, whose karma she was working out, whether it was her own that she was finishing, whether she was doing karma for master's work, for her own disciples, who knows. But the body is a different reality. It's good also, you know, it's just good to remember these things. Your body ages, your body changes. It, it, it just isn't us. I was commenting, I, I had to choose a photograph, or I had several photographs to choose to put for this book that's about to be published that I've written. And Tajindra, the designer, asked me which one of those pictures I wanted to use, just so we're between two of them. I told him, my, my face has never looked like my face to me, so I can't really tell which one, because even when I look in the mirror, I'm always a little surprised by who looks back at me. Maybe everyone is. Maybe we just live in different bodies, or who knows what it is. The only time I was, I was telling Karen Gamma, I was reminding, remembered this. When we did the play about St. Francis, not recently, but we did it 20 years ago, maybe in our school, or 15, we were in this building, so whenever it was, and at that time, we didn't have enough children to really cast it fully, so adults were in the play. So I played St. Clair uh, in, in that play for part of it. And I got a costume from Maggie at Ananda Village, and it was this beautiful dove gray 
nun's outfit, complete with, you know, the thing that you put around your face. So when I put the whole costume on, all that was showing was just this little circle of my face, which is like nuns wear. And so I kind of was in the minister's room, which was the dressing room, and I put the whole thing on, and then I turned around and looked at the mirror. And that was the first time I looked like myself to myself. And I actually, I joked and I said, yes, this is the look I've been trying to achieve. Because <laughs> it's just how many lifetimes of not even looking in a mirror, but of that being the self. You know, I'm sure I've had countless lifetimes like that, but it was really striking. And I've never had anything before or since that was as striking to me as that. Oh yeah, there she is. That's who I've been looking for. Odd, isn't it? Now, let me think, why was I saying that? Oh, yes, it was about our relation to the body. So it's, it's complicated. At the same time, and I will just put this in because it's important, I was, I, as a, I, I was never very good at being a girl. I just uh, never... I, I liked clothes. I've always liked clothes. But I just never understood how to be a girl very clearly. And when I got onto the spiritual path, I felt... I felt it gave me complete license to just abandon all pretense of trying to be attractive or all anything like that. So I was not, I was kind of an eyesore, I think is actually the only way I can put it. And then I met Swami, and uh, I remember we, and you know, he, he, he works with you slowly. And this was a few years, what year would this have been? Maybe 1975 probably about in there. We went on a trip to Carmel. And I distinctly remember I brought what were to me were my nice clothes. I mean, bear in mind, we all had terrible clothes in those days because we didn't have any money. But I had this uh, batik skirt in shades of brown, and I had a sweater, a brown sweater that I wore with. And the sweater was kind of shapeless. I was a nun, after all. I mean, it was, it was the hippie day. And he looked at it, and he said, didn't you bring anything nicer than that? You know, here we are in Carmel. And I looked down and I thought, no, you know, this this is pretty nice. And then he actually said to me, we're going to have to buy you a new dress. And I, I guess I'm going to end up telling this whole story. I was going to just tell part of it. but So the next day, and now bear in mind, I earned a $50 a month total. And that was like all any of us earned. And he took us, he took me shopping with uh, Jotish and Davy, I think were there, and a few others were there. He took me shopping and he just pulled out of the rack this white shirt dress that was uh, shirt you know shirt that what that means is that a word shirt dress yeah that was made out of white eyelet fabric and it and it was sort of short it came like and I never wore anything I wore everything was ankle length I never wore anything short it was like either just below my knee or mid knee it was just terribly and I put it on like this, and it was actually slightly transparent so that you could see my underwear through it, and I didn't have a slip. Swami said, pretend it's her bathing suit. That's what he actually said out loud. (laughs) And I just, he said, do you like it? And I said, you know, it's fine, sir. And then he collected money from all the people there to help pay for it. It cost like $70 or something like that. And fortunately, I found a slip because that would have just been beyond. And so I wore it all weekend. You know, just like that. I just could hardly move. And then as we were leaving Carmel, Swami's been sarcastic to me twice and twice that I can remember. This was the first time. He just was never sarcastic. 
I said, uh, do I have to wear this when we go back to Ananda? And he said, no, we'll put it in a glass case and put it out and show it to people when they tour the farm. <laughs> um, but he said, basically, he said, we have to look at you. He said, and you know, it's not, you don't dress for yourself. You dress because other people have to look at you. And there's a certain, and he was right, a certain lack of dignity to my disregard. And so he did not endorse, he did not endorse vanity. And also, I saw him play it differently with other people than he played it with me. But with me, he realized it was, it was not freedom. It was actually I didn't know how to deal with this, and so I'm just going to go under it instead of being able to just be appropriate right in the middle of it. And so I, you know, I gradually learned. The, the end of the story of that white dress is I never was, I could never bring myself to wear it again. I just couldn't. It was just, I just couldn't. And uh, when I finally moved from, but I kept it, of course, when I moved from Ananda village to Palo Alto, you know, we had to package up all our stuff. And Swami had also given me a beautiful blue sweater that he bought in Scotland. It was probably this color, this beautiful wool sweater from Scotland. And in the course of the move, somehow, believe it or not, we ended up with a box of garbage, and we lost one box. And the box had the white dress and the sweater in it. And I always felt that I lost the sweater because I was never able to rise to the dress. You know, it's like the karma had to balance out some way or another. So well, one box was lost. And I mean, I searched for it for years. I kept thinking, it was just gonna, how was it going to turn up? We'd emptied all the boxes. How did it get lost? How could it have gotten lost? It was the most valuable box I had. But I really felt like God just took it away from me because I hadn't, um, because I had to learn. And I did learn. I listened. I, and I, I actually I went to a somebody who trained me how to be a girl. She just she just gave me rules about how to dress and what to do, and and I did it for until two thousand and nine when I got to just quit again and got to be an Swami. So I think that's that. That was a long interlude. Let's take a break. Okay, a couple of minutes. All right. We are now at three three four. Boone once told me, I don't feel it would be right to submit completely to Master's will. Boone, Daniel Boone, was one of his fellow disciples. I don't feel it would be right to submit completely to Master's will. It's important for me also to develop my own will. Otherwise, how can it be called free? I quoted those words to Master later on, without mentioning Boone's name, to get his comment on the subject. Swamiji was in charge of the monks, so naturally he really needed to understand these things. Boone's ideas seemed to me completely twisted. The master understood instantly to whom I was referring. He marveled. But as long as he is bound by moods and desires, he is not free. I don't ask people to suppress their own will. Those who do, those who do what I say, however find an increase, not a decrease, in their freedom. For what I show them is God's will. Freedom comes from tuning your will to the dictates of wisdom. 
Sister Gyanamata used to run up and down doing my will. One day, a few of the more rebellious sort said to her, Why do you always do what he says? You should express your own will. Don't you think, Sister answered, that it's a little late for me to change? She was an old woman by that time. And I must say, I have never been so happy in all my life as I have been since coming here. The master chuckled. They never bothered her again. You know, it is, we're, not, we're not in a position because we don't, we're not living with Master now. And even with Swamiji, he never um, guided us in exactly that same way. We weren't in a position where we felt we were under obedience to someone else's instruction. That was too bad, and it was also the way it was karmically appropriate for us. Swami himself at different times said, you know, Master asked obedience of us. When, when Swamiji had his initial meeting with Master and was initiated as a disciple, Master asked of him unconditional love and unconditional obedience. I mean, they just met. It was pretty strong. And that was where Swami answered him back and said, what if I think you're wrong? And Master said, I will never ask anything of you that God doesn't tell me to ask. And then Swami had so much faith in Master, you know, immediate, intuitive faith, that he said, in that case, I give you my unconditional obedience. But that was, it was a very different relationship than any of us are in to anyone. One can vow that within oneself, but then the instructions are subject to our own filter which is, it's just, it's not as easy as we would like it to be, because ego is very, very slippery, and the vrittis um, can distort the messages very easily. Humility is, it's, it's, it's nice to be humble in these things. But with Master, the question of just doing what he said was really there. You know, he would assign your jobs, and tell you what you were supposed to do. But he was also, he was encouraging and supportive. He wasn't dictatorial. Swami often said that, you know, it, it, the picture of Master as this unreasonable disciplinarian, it's very, very upsetting to Swamiji to have him even almost increasingly portrayed that way. Because he, he had that right which the disciples had given him but he only ever used it when he thought it would be helpful. And, and he, never, he never used it for the sake of just using it. And he, he encouraged. And it's very interesting in Autobiography of a Yogi, this is a nuance to this story that is, it's, it's, it seems to me it's vitally important to know. Sri Yukteswar in Autobiography of a Yogi is presented as a, a pretty draconian guru, you might say. And Master even makes a point of how, you know, it wasn't easy. He wanted to dislodge every diseased tooth in Master's metaphorical mouth, as he put it. Just, and he just didn't matter whether there were other people around or anything. Sri Yukteswar was just, would tell Master what he thought he needed to hear, and that was that. And yet, you have this whole story about this young man named Kumar, who, who somehow Master had an, uh, Sri Yukteswar had an affection for. His charms were lost on the others, but the, but the Guru 
uh, supported him. And then Kumar got it into his head that he wanted to go back to his home village. He wanted to visit his home village. And Sri Yukteswar knew that spiritually it was a very bad thing for him to do because he wasn't strong enough to put himself back into that environment. But Kumar insisted on going despite, as, as Yogananda writes it in the autobiography, despite Sri Yukteswar's gentle hints that he should not. Gentle hints, this man's whole spiritual life was on the line, and all Sri Yukteswar did was hint, because if there was no receptivity, if the guru had to overpower your will to get your cooperation, then it wasn't going to do anything for you spiritually. It was those who received him that he was able to help. If he was just battering you down and making you do it, then the, it was already lost because there, there would be no receptivity at that point. It could be forced upon you, but what would be the point? You know, I, there's a story, in, uh, and, and then Kumar did go back to his village and <coughs> and when he returned, as Yogananda says, it soon became obvious that he'd picked, out a, picked up a number of unsavory habits that made him unsuitable for ashram life. And Sri Yukteswar had to ask him to leave in the whole incarnation. I mean, he'd won the affection of this God-realized master, squandered it, and all Sri Yukteswar did was gently hint that maybe it would be a good idea for him not to risk it because he had to see it for himself or there was no value in it. So at the same time, well, I mean, exactly, that's exactly what Boone uh, was saying. I want to do it my way. So Master's not going to grab him by the neck and say, you have to do it my way, because Boone didn't want to. But then Master just says, you know, incredulously, but that's not free will. I mean, the mere fact that you're asserting your right to be yourself over the Guru's wisdom in and of itself tells, tells you that you're being motivated by less than elevated ideas. See, the confusion is this, is that the pronoun I, when applied to oneself, simultaneously refers to many different levels of, of, of your consciousness. Because we're just this very confused mass of conflicting cross-currents. And just depending on which Ritti has the ball at the moment, you know, it just depends on which way you go. So how we feel about something is only part of whether we can tell whether it's good for us or not. I, I specifically remember this man who who really wanted to follow a certain course of action. And again, this was one of... I Now I can't quite remember whether I was in the room when the conversation took place or Swami repeated it to me afterwards, but I, I, heard, I, I know it for what actually happened. The man really wanted to go off and do something. And Swami suggested to him that it wasn't a good idea, but he insisted that it really felt right to him. And I had the thought afterwards, which I asked Swami, I said, of course it feels right to him because he's closed off all input except what he considers to be his own intuition, and therefore nothing is interfering. You know, he's able, but I, and then as I got to understand the question of intuition, more, of course, there's harmony if there's only one person there. But um, as I got to understand intuition more, I mean, what we call intuition is that your inner voice, 
But your subconscious can speak, your conscious can speak, and your superconscious can speak. And what we want as devotees is not merely to do what we feel. What we want to do is do what our superconscious is guiding us to do. And it is just not always that easy to discern. And, and something will feel really powerfully right because it's so in tune with our subconscious, which is to say which in tune with everything that we presently are, but not necessarily in tune with what the guru knows we can become. And this is often where the conflict comes between either God's will or instructions that were given or advice that we receive from other people. And there's no simple answer to it because it also does not work to not also have a sense of your own inner reality. It's just a a great deal of humility is very helpful and a great deal of, of, it's this balancing line between having the courage to go forward with what you think is right and also the humble willingness to be corrected at any moment. And it's just something that we all learn. And, and we mostly learn from crash and burning. I had, I had one experience where we were trying to solve some difficult situation where a lot of people were involved. And I just came into my head, you know, really just came into my head that I knew exactly what we ought to do. And so I presented to people that I knew what we should do, that this, is, this was the solution. I didn't present it very well. And I didn't get a really good response. And then I started pushing back, and it got a lot worse. It got really, really bad. And then I realized that really I was making a mess. So I wrote a letter to the people involved, and I said, you know, whether or not my first intuition is true, I have now corrupted it with my ego attachment to it, and therefore I withdraw from the discussion. And I did, completely. And after a short time, everyone came to the conclusion that we should do exactly what I had suggested right from the start. (laughs) Because I wasn't wrong, but my lack of humility, my lack of willingness to be wrong in the situation, and my, my, you know, you you, you get a superconscious intuition, but then the ego says, I have a superconscious intuition. And then as soon as you grasp it like that, it ceases to be superconscious. Because the very vibration of it is too subtle to be held like that. And so you may still not be wrong, but you're no longer right. But it's, it's, it's difficult, and it's also not difficult at all. You just kind of do the best you can. And as long as, as, long as you have humility, everything works out. And as long as you recognize that it, superconscious is a flow. And if I, if I make it too rigid, even if you make decisions and start on a course of action, which in this world you have to, there's still this sense of, well, we'll see. I mean, I've had lots of experiences, you know, where I just don't know what God wants until I finally realize that he doesn't want what I want. That's why I don't know. (laughs) And I I just, I can't hear it because I just want a certain answer. And, you know, I think I don't feel that way, but even the lack of clarity sometimes becomes clarity. Oh, yeah, that's why. That's when Swami said to me, it's not hard to know God's will. I said, yes, it is for me. Oh, because I know his will, but I don't like it. So I'll pretend to be confused, because otherwise I would have to follow it. And that would be so unpleasant. <laughs>
<laughs> okay. So, let's try, see if we can go through one more. 335. So this is short. My intention in writing this book has been to exclude as much as possible any autobiographical material. This is Swami writing. I find, however, that it is impossible to do so entirely. Oh, this is glorious. For my life is closely connected with much that I have, for my life is closely connected with much that I have to say about my guru. That's because all true teaching is individual. So for Master's remarks to make sense, often Swami has to tell you why he was saying that. Otherwise it becomes a dogma. I quoted him above for instance, as telling me I had too much intellectual aloofness. As I mentioned in that conversation, I was working hard to overcome this defect. In meditation one evening, I think it was in the early summer of 1951, I felt the power, finally, to cast my ego forcefully out of my consciousness, to blast it, so to speak, into the infinite, this strong act of will was succeeded by a great sense of release and inner freedom. After that meditation, I went out of doors and there came upon the master. He was standing silently above the Mount Washington tennis courts, gazing out across them at the twinkling lights of Los Angeles in the distance. I went to him and without saying anything, knelt to touch his feet. Silently, I asked for a blessing. He touched me on the forehead and said quietly, Very good. That was not much of a conversation. <laughs> Some people might, that was not much of a conversation, some people might say. Yet in some ways, it was the most important conversation we ever had. For from then on, I never again felt a personal involvement in anything I did. That is quite a statement. And you have to temper that with the fact that Swami was never given to exaggeration or hyperbole. He always said, and I speak from 44 years of knowing him, he always said exactly what he meant. I never again felt a personal involvement in anything I did. It's an amazing really interesting to think about. It wasn't that things didn't happen, but I never felt a personal involvement in it. Again, these are these subtleties. My whole life became inwardly a conversation with him, with Master. Many people have attempted since then to strip me of that closeness. None have succeeded. Wow. You know, he, he, he used the phrase... Uh, I never identify with Kriyananda. I feel Kriyananda is an event for which I am responsible, which is a, a marvelous way to think about yourself because it, it's a, a beautiful reconciliation between total surrender and detachment and the need to act. Because if you're responsible for something, you have to put out a tremendous amount of energy to, make, to carry out that responsibility. Um, I think it was some one of the great um, entrepreneurs of America, like Edison or Ford or one of those, who said basically, um, you know, leadership is simply the willingness to take responsibility. And it, it actually really is. I've noticed that a lot just in having to work with people. People who will actually take responsibility 
I mean, there have been many people through the course of our lives here who will. But, you know, such people are just like gold because you ask them to do something and they'll, you just know, you don't even think about it after they'll take responsibility. And if it doesn't work, they'll figure out a way to make it work. And that's, that's really all that it is. So when I myself become an event for which I am responsible, it does not in any way lessen the necessity for excellence and hard work and total attunement and keeping at it. But to not, I, how, what is the word? Personal involvement. To be able to just watch your life happen. I remember when Swamiji, when we were in the middle of um, the Bertolucci lawsuit, which was the character assassination lawsuit, which was just a, a nightmare. And uh, he had to sit in court and hear people just talk about someone that had no relationship to him. That was just this incredible story of this perverted uh, power mad crazy person it was just insane in one of those cycles i said to swamiji you know i i'm not i'm i'm not quite psychic enough to be able to have my feelings take visual form but i felt that particular day in that courtroom that there were demons just small ugly demons and they were running all over the room and they were bouncing off the tables and bouncing off the walls and inspiring people. It was really a weird, evil feeling in there. It was very strange. And I'm, I'm not exaggerating, you know, that I, I, I can be given to hyperbole, but I'm not exaggerating. And then Swami just would just sit there and just listen. And it just, and, and we would get so anxious for him, you know, and he, he, just, he just went away. And they were talking about somebody that had no relationship to him. He just didn't feel... And one of the reasons that that... Among the many reasons why the jury was not persuaded in our favor, Swami himself admitted it, was because he was so detached. You know, a person under such attack, almost everyone would passionately defend themselves. And he just couldn't bring himself to passionately defend Kriyananda. Defend Kriyananda. First it, was a, first, it was a spiritual principle with him not to defend himself. And the second was he just couldn't do it. He just wasn't personally involved enough to be agitated enough. And so they just took that as a sign that he was either, that their accusations were true, that he was, he was not a normal man, <laughs> which he wasn't. But it's, it, I often think about that when, when things go, start going wonkus in my life, for whatever reason they go wonkus, whether it's personal or circumstantial. I often think of Swami in that courtroom. And I try to think about just where, where are you in your consciousness when you can just watch it go on around you but not feel personally involved in it. I mean, it was so bad. Swami was so... At one point, he was actually on the witness stand I mean, I, this, this borders on irresponsibility but it's also funny he was actually supposed to be answer, answering questions and the battery in his hearing aid died <laughs> and he didn't bother to even stop and have it fixed <laughs> he sort of said later well I could understand well enough you know he knew it didn't matter what he said but it's just like you know almost anyone else would just be too panicked and then another time he said to me well, I just spent most of my time in the astral world when in the, he was in that courtroom. He just left. 
just there was nothing he could do, so he just thought he'd go to a more pleasant environment. I mean, that's what we're working for. It's a real revolution. It's not just, let's make this a little nicer. It's let's become something else that we can hardly imagine at this point. Yes, my friend, what's your question? Um, when you remind us how uh, Swami uh, just commanded his will, his ego to leave yeah. with uh, supreme success, it reminded me of uh, later, really late in his life, he would say that increasingly he was having a hard time <coughs> discerning where Yogananda ended, uh, no, where he ended and Yogananda began. And uh, to, in other words, the distinction between the two is becoming more and more meaningless. Exactly. It's very, I mean, it's really, you know, a book like this is scripture. And you just read it over and over, and each time you read it, you just hear something in it that you didn't know was there before. Or you didn't notice. And, and also, you know, you, you have to have a certain energy level to read Swami Kriyananda's books. Because if you don't, you don't get what's in them. But it's, it's a great gift. Okay, great souls. That will probably end us. And so we did quite a few tonight. We started at 3.30, and we went through 3.35. Okay. Thank you very much.